Chapter 20, we'll be reading. There we go. <laughs> it's been a while uh, in our series in Matthew, and now we find ourselves in chapter 20. Uh, so today we'll be looking at this, reading through this. We're going to read um, in our reading this morning, Matthew 20, that entire chapter. And then as we get into God's word, we'll look a bit at the context of what we're looking at today so that we can keep things in perspective. Would you stand with me in respect to the reading of God's word? Didn't mention before, but if you don't have a Bible, ushers stand ready with Bibles available. Just, just motion and raise your hand. They'll bring a Bible to you right now that you can use through our service. Finish this phrase for me. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God's word is important, and that's why we read it in our service as we worship him. We can't worship him without understanding and listening to his word. Let's read God's word. Would you follow along with me as I read aloud? Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into, my, into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received the denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm, I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. 
But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out, to, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. May God open our eyes to understand his word. Give us a heart to obey it. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Please remain standing with me as we pray. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to come today and to worship you in this place, the first Sunday of the year. We thank you for all of your provisions throughout this past year. And we pray that we will continue to look to you for those things that we need to do the things that you've called us to do. Understanding that you will supply all that's needed for your purpose. We pray for those who are sick and not with us today. We think of Dale and Trenace. That you might continue to work and heal in their bodies. Lord, others have been sick during the week and some have been healed and some have a long-standing conditions, we think. And we pray for those who are suffering different type of ailments, that you would bless, that you would heal, that you would allow them, teach them to trust you. No matter what, no matter what it is, you have a purpose for them or what however their condition will turn out. We pray that we might learn to trust you and to walk in, in your ways. We think of Brenda Adams and asking you to watch over. Pray, we pray for her dependence on you, trust in you, anchoring in you. We pray, Lord, that we will minister to her in appropriate ways and encourage her we pray for those who are traveling right now. We think of Lawrence and Charmone, Michelle and her children. They travel back from the funeral. And uh, we pray for others who will be traveling in the coming weeks for vacation and just enjoyment that you bring, keep them in safety and allow them to come back here. We thank you for all who are here today and ask that you would just Bless the preaching of your word. Make it plain to us and, and open our hearts to hear what you have to say, to apply it in that way that you would have us to apply it in our individual lives, that we might glorify Christ, we might live boldly for him. We might be diligent in our worship, in our service, in our living for him. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Behold the Lamb. What a beautiful song. What an appropriate song to show us what our focus ought to be. We just come from a 
out of the Christmas season. And in Christmas, there's so many things that distract us from the true meaning. We have to focus on beholding the Lord Jesus Christ, beholding the Lamb. And now we come into a new year, and there's so many things that we have on our focus and things that we want to do and accomplish and things we want to change. And let's remember that our focus needs to be on Christ. Why must our focus be on Christ? We read today Matthew chapter 20, and it starts kind of in the middle of teaching. And I know it's been over a month since we've done this. So let's just look a little bit at chapter 19 and see its tie into chapter 20 so that we can get the main thrust of what the Word of God is telling us today. In chapter 20, Jesus starts right into speaking a, a parable. And at the end of that parable, we see his point. At verse 16, he says, so the last will be first, and the first last. That's his point. The last will be first, and the first last. And we're going to go through that parable and see what he's speaking of and what his emphasis is in. But it doesn't just start there. In chapter 19, Verse 30, he says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so I think he's making his point at the end of chapter 19 and illustrating it in chapter 20 in several ways. This thing about last being first and first last. In chapter 19, his adversaries ask him questions to try to trap him, to try to get him to say something that they can use against him. And after he answers them, they, they ask him a question about um, divorce. And then in the middle of chapter 19, a man comes to him and he asked Jesus, what good thing can I do to get into heaven? And Jesus answers him. He basically says this, well, why don't you try this? If you can keep all the commandments, you can get in. And the man says, yeah, okay, cool, check, check. I got that. I've done that. And Jesus is like, yeah, you think, you, you think you've done it. You really think you've done all that, huh? And he says to Jesus, well, I've done all those, so what more can I do? Or what more should I do? He's, he's really acknowledging that he knows that's not getting him in. There's got to be something more than that. He really says he's keeping part of the commandments, and what more is it to it? And Jesus says, well, then, if you really have kept them all, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come in. Join me. It says, what verse is that? Verse 22 of chapter 19. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was a rich man, and he was not willing to give up what he had, even if it meant him getting into heaven. Jesus, and so Jesus is making a point here, though, because the disciples come to Jesus and they say, well, Jesus makes the point to the disciples. First he says, you see that? Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, it's easier for, I, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a man like that to get into heaven. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus makes this statement, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
His point is this, is that none of us can get into heaven in our own doing by what we do, about how we change ourselves, or how we make ourselves ready. It's impossible. Man cannot do it. This man was as close to it as anybody, and he failed. Jesus is making a point. You can't get in there by doing good. None of us will make it that way. But there's a way that only God can make for us to enter into heaven. So Peter makes a point where he says, well, we've given up everything. What about us? And I like what Jesus says. He, he doesn't rebuke Peter for saying that. He says, you'll be rewarded for the sacrifice that you've made. And he says in verse 29, everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Those who have made sacrifices for, for, for me, for my sake, will be rewarded, he's saying. But then he makes a statement, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So it begs the question, what does that mean? He explains it in chapter 20, so let's get into chapter 20. In chapter 20... We have the parable, which is a story of the laborers in the vineyard. I love Jesus' teaching on parables because it is so, um, it's simple. It's a straightforward story that teaches, but it has spiritual truth that might not explode until you chew on it a little bit. One of those things that you start to, 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 to get it and then poof, wow. That's what his parables are like. Simple parable. He says it's a master who owns a vineyard. And this particular day, he's looking for people to work in his vineyard. So he goes out on the marketplace and he hires some guys to work in the vineyard. This is at the start of the day. And they make a deal with him. What's our wages? Well, your wages is going to be a denarius. And denarius just means a day's wage. Whatever the going rate was, that's what they were going to get paid. They agreed to that. That's cool. That's fair. We will work. We will do all, we'll work diligently because you're going to pay us a value. They're cool. Coming to my vineyard, get busy, get to work. He recognized that's not enough. We still need more people. So he goes at the third hour and he finds more people. Notice what he says to them. Do you want to work for me? Yeah, come on, work me. I'll pay you what you're worth. Or I'll pay you, I'll pay you a fair. Let's look at what he actually says. Verse 3, going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And then he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. He does the same thing, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and then at the 11th hour. In this story, there's a 12-hour work day. <laughs> I laugh because that ain't our culture, is it? <laughs> We're like, eight hours, man, I'm done. And then I'm only working five days a week. The Lord gave a principle, God gave a principle of six days you should work, and on the seventh, you should rest. Well, anyway, I won't get into that. Um, so this, they were working these 12-hour days. And at the 11th hour, he goes into the marketplace. He looks for workers. He finds some people idle. He says, come work for me. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard says to his firm, foreman, we'll look at verse 8, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. 
Here we see this principle again, the last and the first, and the first and the last. He says, pay the ones who came last, pay them first, until you work down to the ones who came first, and then pay them last. This whole point of this story is to illustrate this last and this first sense things that Jesus is saying. And what's the point of the last and the first? It says, the kingdom of heaven is like. The parables tell us something about heaven, something about God's kingdom, and what are the principles that guides him in his kingdom. He's the king. He makes the rules. What are they? Here they are. The kingdom of heaven is like this. So, in the story, he tells the response of these workers. The ones who were at the 11th hour were given a denarius, a full day's wage. Each of them. And it says, and when those hired about the 11th hour, looking at verse 9, each of them received the denarius. So when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. He tells us this parable, we can relate to that. We understand that. In fact, when they talked at the end with the foreman, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. why are you giving me a denarius? And he says, didn't we agree? Didn't we agree? When I hired you, you get a denarius? Yeah, but you gave them a denarius. And I work way more hours than them. And I work in the burden of the heat of the day. And he says to them, which is shocking, this, this, this parable is to get our attention because we have this sense of fairness. It's a human trait. I don't know that you got to teach a class in school about fairness. You just give some candy to some little kids and they start to understand what's really fair or at least they have a concept in themselves of what's fair. Because you give one to one, and you give two to another, and they wait, 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 wait a minute. Why he got two? They don't even have to like the candy. Why he got two? And it's not a matter of what they really need, because they don't need the candy. The, the point is we have this sense of fairness and, and, and God is going to bust that open so that we understand something about his kingdom. Spoiler alert. It ain't about fairness. It ain't about fairness at all. What is it about? So he says to those who worked all the hours, more than the ones who came at the 11th, more than the ones who came at the 9th or the 6th or the 3rd hour, whatever. They all had a beef with them, right? Who were the only ones not complaining? <laughs> the ones who came at the 11th hour. <laughs> They're like, hey, sounds good to me. <laughs> I like this dude. He's nice. See you tomorrow at the 11th hour, right? <laughs> this is what he says to them. Friend, am I doing you, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for Daenerys? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Now, I know in our day and age, we're going to talk about fair labor practices. And, and look, if you gave them that, then you ought to adjust mine. And we play that game all the time. You know, I really like sports. And sports has that same thing. As soon as one guy gets paid and, and he, he writes a contract, as, as, as soon as it's established, other guys come and say, well, shh, if he getting that, 
I ought to get more. And as soon as they get more, he wants to go back and say, wait a minute. I know I signed this contract, but, 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 you know, if they getting the same as I got, I've been here longer. I've been doing about, you know. So we all reason this thing of fairness. And I think we really bring it into thinking about how God works. There's something about the first being last and the last being first. The entrance to the kingdom is not based on a fairness of individual merit. It's based on grace. It's based on grace. Here's the question. Are you negotiating with God for what is right, or are you making a plea to God for his grace? Either you're on the merit plan or the grace plan. Do you want God to give you what you deserve, or do you want him to act on his goodness of his grace? And so Jesus is illustrating the different attitude between the different workers, and of course they all have different perspective based on what they think they brought to the table. The one who started at the beginning of the day think they brought to the table a full day's work, and so they ought to get a full day's pay, but he's saying, I gave you a full day's pay. Because we agreed, the key words in there, they agreed, uh, agreed with the laborers, verse 2. What is right, I will give you, verse 4. They thought they would receive more. If we get what it is we deserve, when we're bargaining with God, we bring nothing to the table. We bring absolutely nothing to the table. God is saying to us, uh, come here a second. Um, I just noticed you inhaled and you exhaled. Where'd you get that breath from? Where? Where'd you get the lungs to process that air that I made for you so you could live? We have this idea with God. And the reason why we get mad at God is because you didn't treat me the same as you treated somebody else. I got more hardships than them. And I didn't deserve this. Not after what I did. And God will not be held to that because he is abundantly gracious. He gives to some exactly what they bargain for and what they deserve. He gives to others what they plead for and beg from his goodness and his grace. Do you want to bargain with God? Or do you want to cry out for his grace and his mercy? See, if you come to bargain with God, you think you're bringing something to the table. That's the first problem. You got this pride of who you are or who you think you are. And God said, I'm going to slap that down. Because you're only going to come to me in a humble setting. Because I'm God and you ain't. God demands that, absolutely demands that. He is God, and there's none else besides him. Like the song that we sang, Nobody Greater. We should add something to that. Nobody equal either. There's no match for God. He absolutely has the right to rule because of who he is. And who he is is righteous and holy. So we can't accuse him of not being fair. So, Jesus is explaining this idea of grace. 
Grace is something we don't deserve that God offers to us out of his goodness, not out of our merit, not something that we deserve or we've worked for or that we've earned. So we can either come to him on that basis or we can come to him on the basis of our merit. What have we deserved and what, what do we deserve and what have we earned? The Bible says all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. The story of the Old Testament is a story of the people of God who ultimately failed over and over and over again. They sinned against God. I know of a young man who's not a believer in, I don't know how you want to classify him, an agnostic or, or whatever, but he wanted to ask the question, why is the God of the Old Testament so much different than the God of the New Testament? Somebody was trying to answer that question for him. And I didn't hear the answer, but I could kind of perceive that it was wrong. The Bible says God hasn't changed a bit. The same Old Testament God that dealt with his people Israel is the same New Testament God that deals with his people. We seem to think that God is so uh, judgmental and he will punish wrong in the Old Testament and then he's grace in the New Testament. But is he really? All through the Old Testament, I see the forbearance of God dealing with his people after they sinned again and again and again and again. And he expresses, look, I, I, I'm sick of y'all. I'm ready to toss you out. He, he starts it off in Genesis with, with, with the people in Noah's day. He says, Noah, man, back off. I'm finna, I'm, finna, I'm finna get rid of all of them. But it says, Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord, he raised up from Noah a whole generation, a whole world, and yet we see where they went. Did God not know that that was going to happen? Yeah, he knew. God is abundantly patient, loving, and gracious with his creation, and yet they prove over and over again they don't deserve it. They do not deserve it. And yet his grace is still available over and over again. I think throughout the rest of the chapter, he illustrates this last verse and first last. So let me just go through that as we understand more of what that means. In the middle of this, after he finishes this parable in verse, four, verse 16, he says, So the last will be first, and the first Last. Again, what does that mean? In verse 17, now he introduces something else. Let's read it. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and be raised on the third day. This is the third announcement that Jesus has to his disciples foretelling his, his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. The first one is in chapter 16, verse 21. You turn back just a few pages, you'll see that. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He begins to bring that up. In chapter 17, he does it again. The second time, he reminds his disciples. Chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised. On the third day, even gives their response. They were greatly distressed. 
Now in chapter 20, in the middle of teaching the, this, this principle of the first last and the last first, he brings this up again. He reminds them of what's going to happen very, very soon. He's on his way. If you look at chapter 21, we see he's just literally a week away from this happening. He explains to his disciples again that this is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and when I get there, they're going to come down on me. And I'm going to, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked in a mock trial. I'm going to be abused. I'm going to be put to death, and I'm going to rise again. He tells them all of this right before it happens. Behold the Lamb. This is, there, is this like a spotlight in this chapter on this verse saying pay attention to the main thing in life. <clears throat> this is central to all of history, all of what God is doing in all of history, and is central to our hope, our faith, and our lives. It's saying, understand what's going on here and focus on this. We'll tie it together as we look at the next section. We see here, you might have the heading in your Bible, a mother's request. What happens here? The two sons of Zebedee, James and John. Their mother comes to Jesus and says, hey, can I ask you a favor? Jesus says, well, what do you want? I like that response. Because so, many of, so often today, we want a person, can I ask you a favor? We want them to just say, yeah, automatically. Really? <laughs> you, better, you better state the request first. Then I can tell you whether I will grant it or not. So she asked him, look, for my two sons, here's what I'm asking you. When you, stand, when you get to your kingdom, I want one to sit on your left side and one on the right side and rule with you. I want them the top appointees in your kingdom. <laughs> First of all, you can imagine, you can actually see the response of the other ten disciples after this happened. Uh, apparently this happened kind of privately. They didn't, he, they didn't see it going on, but they understood later what had happened. It said they were indignant. But why were they indignant? Because <laughs> they wanted that position. <laughs> How did they get that? ain't fair. How did they get to be that? But why should they be indignant? Who has the audacity to request of God this position. But again, I notice Jesus' response. He doesn't totally rebuke them. He asks them a few questions. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? When he says the cup, he talks about the cup in, in the Old Testament as well as the New. Is Revelation brings this out that the cup is a cup of the outpouring of God's wrath. You see that in Revelation, don't you? God is pouring out his wrath. Revelation tells us how this thing is going to end and how the kingdom is going to come into place. God is going to pour out his wrath on sin and sinners, and his son is going to come and take his rightful place. Jesus says to these two, to James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to withstand and to take on God's wrath in your life? What he's saying is there is suffering before honor. It's a principle. There is suffering before honor. Jesus, in fact, is going to be honored, but he says, first, I've got to go to Jerusalem where I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be ridiculed and mocked and put to death, and then I will rise again. Suffering comes before honor. 
He says, are you ready to suffer in the same ways I'm going to suffer? And they says, we are. Another surprising response is what Jesus says back. Uh, yeah, you will. That's what he says to them. He knows. He knows exactly what's going to take place in their life. And he's not saying that to be smart. It's just factual. Are you willing to take and drink of the cup that I have? Uh, yeah, we're willing. They almost is like naive or, or maybe just naive thinking that, hey, we're all for you. We're behind you 100%. We'll do anything that, that's required of us. And history shows that they actually did. They were willing. We see Peter in the flesh saying, Lord, even if everybody uh, uh, um, um, uh, goes away and <clears throat> is not faithful to you, I'll be faithful to the end. He says to Peter, really? This night, this night won't even end before you've denied me three times. Peter, you, your heart is there, but <laughs> you're not quite ready yet. But he says to them, yeah, you will. And he means that you will suffer in some unexpected ways. I mentioned the two sons of, of Zebedee, James and John. James was the first disciple killed. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 3, says Herod went out and killed James with the sword. And then he thought to take Peter also. He put Peter in jail intending to kill him. God miraculously rescues Peter out of that prison and unites him back with the other apostles. He, God saves Peter and he allowed James, his brother, to be killed. Is that fair? how God doesn't measure fairness on a human level like we do? Is it fair that his son will be put on the cross for no sin of his own, no wrongdoing, absolutely sinless, but die on a cross for our sins? Notice what, what Jesus says at the end of this exchange. Let me just jump to it in Matthew chapter 20 when he's having this conversation. <clears throat> Later on, all the disciples jump on James and John like, what y'all doing? And before they get in a fight, it's like Jesus really is breaking up a fight. It's like Jesus called them and says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and the, their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Isn't that another way of saying the first will be last, last will be first? Whoever will be first among you shall be your slave. Isn't that another way of saying the highest is actually going to be the lowest? The lowest is going to be the highest. The first is going to be last. The last is going to be first. And then he gives the illustration, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself is illustrating the principle that there is suffering before honor, and he is going to be first, but he's going to be treated like the least, the last. Stripped of dignity and honor by man, but given the ultimate dignity and honor by God. The one who should be first is treated at, at, as last. The one who is treated at last will be promoted and honored as first. This is the principle that Jesus is teaching to his disciples from the start. Let's go back to chapter 19 and see how this is illustrated. When Peter says to, to Jesus, we've left everything and we're following you. What will we have? He says, truly, this is verse 28. You with me there? Verse nine, chapter 19, verse 28. Say amen if you're there with me. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. <laughs> Think about what he said to, to the sons of Zebedee. 
Are you willing to eat, to drink of the cup? Yeah, we are. And yeah, you will. He's also saying the request that your mom has for you in some ways is going to be, it's going to be permitted. You will sit on the 12 thrones with me in heaven. But what? He says, and everyone, verse 29, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, I think that everyone is relating to all in all of history who make sacrifices for Jesus or are persecuted because of their faith. Let me ask you a question. Who's persecuted because of their faith? Wasn't Job persecuted because of his faith as a test, right? Satan says, hey, I don't think Job is all that. And God says, hey, go ahead. Have Adam. You can persecute him. So what I'm saying from this is, you here today, I've gone through suffering and trials. That you, not, you don't have somebody trying to shoot you because you believe in Christ, but you have Satan aiming at you, targeting you with trials. It may be a job loss. It may be a child loss. It may be sickness. It may be hardship. You are experiencing these things as a result of your faith in Christ. And God is saying, all those, Suffering comes before honor. And all those who have made sacrifices for my name, every last one of them. And by the way, I don't think you can be a believer in some way without experiencing some type of suffering or experience because of your faith. We don't, and here's the thing, God ain't fair. He made me, well, look, we don't all experience the same exact things. You don't raise your kids that same way either. It's just life experiences. So all of us don't experience the same things, and we shouldn't look and see who, how come you ain't experienced what I experienced, and am I going to be blessed by that? Here's in the word. All those who have made sacrifices, every last one of them, Read it again, verse 29 of chapter 19. Everyone, everyone who has left houses, notice the word or, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands. In other words, the list goes on. It's not just this exclusive group of people or this exclusive list. All those who in some way suffer because of their faith or their walk with God will receive what? A hundredfold and will e inherit eternal life. And then he says this, many who are first will be last. And the last first. Those who are treated like Christ as last on this earth will be exalted and treated like Christ as first or honored in the kingdom. Those in this life who are highly esteemed and treated with great regard like that rich young ruler who had all of his riches, had those things that he desired... And he treasured those things more than any faith in God. They will be treated like last or rejected in the kingdom. And Jesus says, hey, that's why it's so hard for a rich man who has made all of his things his God, his successes his God. It's going to be hard for him to identify with God and be brought into the kingdom. In fact, it's impossible. But God can do it with those same type of individuals, with flesh and blood. God can make a change, a change of humility, a change of surrender. That's what he's talking about. And that's what he's illustrating. It's illustrated in the life of Christ himself when he says, I'm about to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be made last so I could be made first. And I'm going to be made last 
so you can be made first. He says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. I love the, the, the story of Christ's birth is those gifts that were given him show that he's full of the honor that those gifts show. But he's not treated like that in this life. He's disrespected. But he's going to receive that honor at the right hand of the throne of God. And on his side is going to be those who have diligently served him. Let me just speak for a moment some false conclusions that we get from this story. The false conclusion from this labors in the vineyard is that the parable teaches that labor for the kingdom is not appropriately and proportionately rewarded. That's a false conclusion. What do I mean by that? It's teaching that Man, the master, he's just unfair. Them guys that worked all day is, is, is not getting treated right. And, and, and so when you work for the master, you work for that master, he ain't going to treat you right. That's a false conclusion from this. And it's born out in chapter 19, verse 29, when Jesus says clearly to the disciples, all those who have suffered, all those who have surrendered, who have sacrificed houses and lands and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, they will receive a hundredfold. In other words, it's, 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 they will be blessed for what they have done. In chapter 25, verse 21, it's another parable when he talks about the ones who've been given the different talents, and he says, you have been faithful in this, this small thing, come to the kingdom you be given much much more. And so godliness is rewarded. Steadfastness is rewarded. Continuing faithful is rewarded, just like it was in, in the life of Job. Galatians 6, 9 says this, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. What's the due season? It's not this life. It's in the kingdom. We will definitely reap if we don't give up. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know what? Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor, in the your labor in the Lord will be rewarded. So this parable is not teaching that God is just making slaves of folks and not paying them right and not treating them right and won't reward them for their due diligence and working all day won't be rewarded. You know, we have this thing in the, in the army that says, you know, you get the same for marching as you do for fighting. You ever heard that? You get the same for marching as you do for fighting. What they're saying is, hey, man, pay us the same. Why is you sacrificing your life? Why is you putting your stuff on the line, your life on the line? Are you getting paid the same as one who's just marching? He's just got to wear the uniform and march around like he's a true soldier. You're the one in the line of fire, and you're getting killed, but y'all getting paid the same. That is a worldly point of view that doesn't see the God who rewards faithfulness to him. Proper conclusions is what we've already said. Entrance to the kingdom is not based on merit. It's based on God's grace. And here's the thing I wanted to say. Grace is unexpected and undeserved, but is greatly appreciated. In other words, grace has this attitude of, I don't deserve this. And I, 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 I didn't expect it all. It's, in other words, it's way more than I deserved and way more than I ever anticipated or expected. 
but thank you. <laughs> but thank you. What's the opposite of that? It is, you owe me. I deserve this. Or in other words, I deserve better than what I'm getting now. As if we're being mistreated by God. And that's the sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to this. And entitlement is always accompanied by a lack of gratitude, unthankfulness. God wants us to view this thing of what he has done. Well, let me just illustrate it. Matthew 20, verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open." And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This illustrates the whole point. Two blind men, the least of all. They couldn't even see that Jesus was coming their way. They had to take it secondhand. They, they kind of heard all the scurry and all the stuff that's going around, like, what, what's going on? What's going on? Hey, he's coming. Who, who, who's coming? The great healer, the one who's done all these miracles. The, he's on his path to Jerusalem. He's passing by our town. Him, the one who's healed all the people, I'm blind. Let me see him. Let me get at him. Let, show me which, which street he's going to come down. Let me get as close as I can. Blind. Because they were blind, they were probably most likely beggars. Can't make a living for themselves. They had to depend on others. I, the absolute uh, uh, opposite of being proud sustainers, ones who work their own thing and, and build themselves up. No, not them. In fact, it says that as Jesus was coming, they were sitting along the street. Everybody else must have been standing, even walking, but they were sitting. It just shows their low estate. But what do they do for Jesus? Do they negotiate with him on the base of merit, on what they deserve? No, there's no negotiating here. It's no positioning for honor. It's not even like the sons of Zebedee coming to Jesus and say, hey, what well, can you bring us on up with you? Give us a higher position. It's not even that. In fact, they're treated by the crowd as they cry out to Jesus. They're told to shut up. It says the crowd will silence them, hush them. We, yeah, get away from us. You know, we, we, he's about to come. We don't want y'all around here. They were treated as nothing. Well, what did these blind beggars do? They cried out for Jesus. They cried out for Jesus. What does Jesus do? He stops. He stops along the path right where they are. I would imagine if you were following him, it's kind of like a parade going down this street and going down here, and he happens to go down this little alley, right? <laughs> That's kind of how I imagine it. It's like it's off course. And like, That's kind of strange. He stops. He engages with them and calls them. How do you call somebody? I imagine you can say, hey, 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 say, hey, you. You can't get their attention that way. They can't see you signaling. I think he came right up to them and asked them by name. Hey, I want to interact with you. He asked them, what is it that you want? Everybody else in this story is approaching Jesus for what they want. Jesus is approaching these and asking them 
what do you want? Their request is not for honor, not for riches, not for fame. Lord, acknowledging his authority, let our eyes be open, demonstrating their faith that he can fully accomplish what they're asking. Jesus grants their request immediately. Notice what it says. Verse 32. No, verse 34. Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So we see their response. They're healed. They recover their sight. And what do they do? They follow him. They follow him. The illustration by the two blind men is the illustration that God wants us to show in our own lives as we see ourselves, to humble ourselves, to cry out for God and to know that God responds. The Lord Jesus responds to an individual like that. I'm going to close in this time, and I know we normally have communion today, but we're going to do that next week. But I want you to consider this now. Are you bargaining with God? Or are you simply crying out to him and reaching for the grace that he offers to you? What can I do for you, he says to the blind men. What can I do for you? And by faith, they ask, let my eyes be open. That's the position God wants us to come to him on. Are you coming to him on that this year? You see yourself in need like the blind men see themselves? Are you willing to submit yourself to God? Do you recognize that God has made his path to you? It's not by accident. He's intentionally gone your way. God responds that way to hearts that he has humbled, that they might see him, that they might cry out to him, that he might respond to them. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We pray for our proper response. We don't have anything to bargain with you on, but we don't have to. You graciously come our way, walk down our path. It's not an accident that you have bumped into us. And you say to us, what do you need? So open our eyes, Father, to see your grace. Help us to stop comparing ourselves with every other person. <clears throat> and to recognize that on this path, it's a difficult path. There's going to be suffering before honoring. You walked that path, and you had that same path for us. Each one of those disciples experienced that for themselves in their own life experience. We don't know how quite to deal with that, but we can, we can say this. You're sovereign. You choose the path for us, and we just want you to be with us and walk with us. Minister to us along the way, and we'll be content with that. We know that you care for us, you love us, and you have ministered to us every step of the way. We don't have to understand everything you're doing or everything you will do, but we understand that we belong to you, and we want to belong to you. We just want to submit ourselves to you. You're sovereign. You can do with our lives as you please. And what you do is extend your grace to us. So we thank you for that.
May we live out this grace in our lives today. As we close this service right now, Lord, may we just have that attitude, that humility to say, thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for helping me to hear the gospel. Thanking you. Thank you, Lord, for opening my heart to the gospel. Help me as I walk this path. Be with me. Gird me up. Help me, protect me, bless me so I can honor you in my life. We pray this now in Jesus' name.